All right, welcome to episode number eight of the TurfCast podcast. It's been a few weeks. We had just, you know, so much going on here during the fall time, but today we have a very special guest joining us for the first guest on the show. So Ryan, first of all, I hope you're doing well and let us know kind of what you've been up to and then introduce our guest if you would. Well, darn it, Ryan, I've been waiting for it to snow in Iowa before I would do another podcast with you. So (laughs) mission accomplished. Thank you, weather. And I'm glad we can be back. Um, Yeah, it's been a little bit here. Um, Kind of a crazy fall, just trying to get through uh, high school sports, a very, very busy and challenging season for us here with lots and lots of games that are stacked upon each other and things like that. So it's been uh, it's been a fun ride um, to get all that stuff in, but also had a stadium project that we're finishing up on that just got seated. So kind of a late seating and kind of anxious to see how that all comes together. But yeah, it's been cool. But yeah, like you said, uh, it's our first guest, and it's it's a person that uh, I'm truly you know I, I say this with uh, total respect and conviction that I'm really honored to have him come on and talk to us. Um, He's been a good friend of mine since I got into the sports turf industry uh, almost eight years ago, um, reached out to me almost immediately and, and we kind of hit it off and it's, it's been a great uh, professional and personal friendship ever since. So uh, I'd like to welcome our, our first guest, Wes Skinopsik, the head groundskeeper for the Columbus Clippers, uh, Huntington Park here in Columbus, Ohio. So Wes, welcome. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be here and I uh, appreciate you inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been in professional baseball now. I think you've, I think it says going on 20 years now. So take us through that journey from, you know, uh, you growing up just outside of Cleveland and how you made it down to Ohio state and where you went from there. Yeah. I was just talking to some people earlier today about, uh, graduated in class of 99 was the whole Y2K thing and all that fun stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So last class of the the last century or whatever, but, uh, yeah, so started at Ohio state in fall of 99. And, uh, so my first year in professional baseball was the 2000 season. And it was, you know, I interned with the Clippers. Um, they had brought grass back in 98. So they were, they were in their third year of grass back. Um, so Jeff Lindbergh was there and, uh, you know, it was back at the coop and started there, did my first two years with the Clippers. Um, then in 02, I interned with Doug and the Reds the, the final year at Riverfront. So that was kind of uh, an honor getting to do some of the Pete Rose stuff after the season, just getting to work with Doug and, you know, a really hardworking guy, somebody that I try to model myself after. Um, then 03, 4, 5, I was back with the Clippers as I was finishing school. Um, 06, I was a head groundskeeper with the uh, Indian short season team up in Niles. Then uh, 07, I was out in Baltimore with the Orioles, uh, Nicole's first year out there. Um, 08 and 09, I was head guy up in Syracuse. Um, they kind of did the same thing as uh, Columbus had done a decade earlier. Um, you know, they were switching from synthetic to grass. And so I got there, they were about halfway through the, a little more than halfway through the, uh, install and wound up getting a bunch of snow. And obviously 
I mean, I don't know how much people know about Syracuse, but they get a lot of snow. And I think that winter there was something like 184 inches of snow or something ridiculous. Wow. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, we got to within a couple of weeks of the season starting. You know, the field wasn't done yet. We hadn't gotten all the infield material in or laser graded, all, all that kind of stuff. So we wound up bringing in, you know, I mean, obviously there were some costs involved and, you know, wound up damaging the field a little bit, uh, brand new field, but we wound up bringing in some big full-size circus tents and a bunch of heaters and stuff. And so we covered up kind of basically the tarp square and with a couple big circus tents, heated them. And so inside there, it was like 65, 70 degrees. We're all working all the machines and everything with, uh, you know, just t-shirts and shorts and stuff and getting every, all the dirt installed and laser graded and all that kinds of stuff. So that was uh, a really unique scenario. And then uh, 2010, I had the opportunity to come back to Columbus. So I've been here for the past uh, 10, 11 years now. So this is like 20, 21 years in professional baseball. And definitely have gotten to see a lot, meet a lot of people, learned a lot, experienced a lot. And I think one of the biggest things from my standpoint is, you know, when, when I was young, I thought I knew it all. I didn't want to be told what to do or any of that kind of stuff. And, you know, the older I get and the further along, the more I will ask anybody questions and pretty much with anything I do, uh, there's a whole plethora of people that I'll ask the same exact question to, you know, three, four, five dozen different people and try to get all those answers in. And, you know, I'm not embarrassed at all. You know, I think at this point, you know, I, I'm hitting up guys like Ryan and Munts and Steve and all these guys every single day about something. And it's, there's no embarrassment whatsoever. I'd rather have somebody tell me the right way to do something and, and get it right than, you know, make a mistake and then have to go back and fix it. So. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point too, that, um, and that's, you know, it's interesting you say that because that's sort of how Ryan and I first connected was, uh, you know, a guy that took a chance and was really into, uh, doing his own thing and doing it his own way and, and trying to teach and educate people about grass and, and, and doing so on a home over level, not necessarily a professional level, but still having, you know, the drive to keep pushing forward, but also the humility to be like, you know what? I'm going to ask uh, what might seem like a dumb question. And I don't care if, if you think it's dumb. And I think that's the, that's the really important point is that, uh, you know, I think the people that are really successful, whether it be with their home lawn or whether it be with, you know, professional sports turf or golf courses or anything, are those people that just are that humble to ask the question and build a network of people that will not judge them for asking that question. And I think, you know, I think we've all just sort of done that in our own way. Um, and so I think that's really cool though. So, so you, you know, you get to this position in Columbus and it's been 10 years and I mean, a lot's taken place here kind of, you know, take us back to you get to the ballpark. And for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a triple a ballpark right in downtown Columbus, beautiful facility um, and built and opened the year just before you got there. So you, you got there in year two of a brand new, you know, sparkling, you know, $50 million ballpark. Kind of take us through what the, the, those first few years were like, and, you know, dealing with some of the construction issues and then how it sort of evolved and took, uh, 
took you through that course until it was time to renovate. Yep. So I had kept a good relationship with the folks back in Columbus. Um, the guy that had taken over as the head groundskeeper, um, you know, prior to when I was here, um, he was a good friend of mine. He was, uh, he was a roommate of mine. Uh, you know, his name was Colin. So, yep. So came back to Columbus and I got to visit and see stuff and, you know, I kept in good touch with Colin specifically and, you know, just kind of longtime friends from the day I started in baseball. So, um, there was a lot of things that got pushed through and, and happened that uh, weren't necessarily preferential in the original design and construction um, and install. So he was talking me through those issues and we'd, you know, we'd brainstormed through the process and through that first year on some ways to potentially overcome some, some deficits or some, some problems. So I kind of knew fairly well what I was going to be getting into and, you know, what was good and what was bad. And, you know, I was at least familiar with the organization already. So um, when I did get the call to come back, uh, you know, it was certainly not the optimal time. It was uh, Colin decided to step away and, you know, pretty much March 1st, first week of March, which obviously that's uh, a couple of weeks before the baseball season starts. It's not a good time to make a move. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people probably look poorly upon me as well for leaving Syracuse at that point. Um, you know, fortunately, my assistant there, John, took over and he's still a dear friend of mine. I talked to him last night, actually, and they just finished up while well, they're in the process of finishing up a field renovation right now. So he's, you know, obviously he's done a good job. He stayed there since the day I left and, uh, Anyways, so coming back to Columbus, you know, it was kind of jump in real quick and get the lay of the land, try to put any staff together that I could that wasn't already formulated. And so with the dirt, um, the dirt was one of the issues. It was a, a local company. It was a local install that uh, just wasn't necessarily, there were some issues with the, the infill material. So I came out and before the season threw out two truckloads. So right around 50 tons of infield material. You know, I talked to, uh, I had a longstanding relationship with Grant McKnight with uh, DuraEdge. And so we just kind of came in with 50 tons of infield material, laid it on top. Typically that's not what you would want to do. You would want to till it in, get a good blend to maybe a three inch depth, um, get everything nice and tight and, and combined did not do that, pretty much did everything textbook wrong, but um, kind of made it work. It was one of those things that we just didn't have time. And, you know, coming in brand new, it was going to be hard to be asking for money for, you know, another round of laser grading and tilling and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I just kind of made do through that first year. And, um, you know, Grant still tells stories about that, how we played on basically, you know, a, a half inch cap. And I just had to essentially to keep it down and to keep it from chipping out. I just had to keep it pretty much soaked all the time. Uh, Cause if it would dry up at all, it would just chip out and, and you know, start not playing well. So um, that was one of the biggest issues that just immediately dealt with. Um, you know, there was a lot of products that had already been ordered. There were things in place, um, you know, from a fertility and, and application standpoint, Obviously, the, the world headquarters for Scott's is just up the road here, and 
Um, you know, they've been a, a fantastic sponsor with us even to this day. And, you know, they've helped us out a lot. Um, you know, but there were some, uh, some application arrangements made with those guys. So, um, just kind of changed some things, you know, over the first year or two to, to get a little bit more control of the products that were going down, when things were going down, how they were going down, uh, the rates, things were going down, you know, so just trying to get a little bit better control of the, the turf aspect and just kind of learning the field, learning the ins and outs, because you're until you're on a field every day, uh, you know, regardless of what somebody tells you about or writes about or takes notes or anything, um, it just it, it takes a little while to learn that specific field. Is that on uh, Kentucky Bluegrass then? Yes. So when the field was first installed, when it was first built, it was a 93% sand and it was Tuckahosad that was brought in. So, uh, yes, so 100% Kentucky bluegrass. And over over those first couple of years, I did wind up uh, overseeding in some areas with some ryegrass and sort of regret that. I'm, I'm pretty opposed to overseeding with rye at any point now. Definitely since the new field has gone in, we don't put rye down. Uh, but that's... Uh, that's kind of neither here nor there. <laughs> it's, and that's one of those things too, where I think you're in a situation where you got to get some quick germination and uh, Ryan, Ryan, to be fair, is a, it loves ryegrass and just, again, yeah, it, it looks fan. great. It love it, it's good. It's just when you mix the two and you have like, again, you're trying to present a yep. completely uniform surface that looks consistent and, looks like that, you know, it looks as good in the middle of April as it does in the middle of July, as it does in the middle of September. That's, that's a tall order. I think so. that's been like one of the most interesting things at my own yard at my house is because I have some different areas that are a mix between blue and rye. And then there's some bluegrass sections and then there's the all ryegrass section. And I get to watch that every day throughout all of the year, you know, between, what it looks like in the spring and fall, which is usually all of it looks pretty good and, and generally looks fairly the same, I guess you'd say. But then during the summertime, Ryan, like you're kind of talking about, you can definitely tell the differences and you can just, even day to day, you can say, okay, today I like that better than I like this. And sometimes I change my mind day to day. I'm like, yeah, I should just get rid of that and go to this. And then like a week later, I'll be like, no, I actually like that better. So that's kind of interesting for me being able to see that all those things sort of side by side, I guess, and, and look at my weather and, and look at all of them and see how they're looking. Yeah. And I th that's, that's probably an accurate statement. I, I, it would be interesting, you know, like, uh, Steve Lord down at the Reds who, who Wes, you mentioned earlier, like he had a hundred percent perennial ryegrass field in Cincinnati, you know, in the, in the upper part of the transition zone for a number of years and maintained it, you know, meticulously, but, you know, the, the cost and expense of doing that just had to be insane, you know, as far as fungicides and everything like that goes. So it's interesting to see uh, different folks try to do it different ways. And that's the thing in sports turf. I think there's really only a few, maybe three or so ways that you can really make it work and be uh, a world-class playing surface, have it and have it look good and play good and be safe and all these things that we need to do and look good for TV. And, and, and again, it's just, it's a really challenging aspect of, of the job, uh, especially at that level. And that's what I think, you know, Wes, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but 
I think at your level, the biggest thing that you want to see is just predictability, you know, from the grass and you understand and know what to expect when you look at the forecast and know where you're at in your fungicide rotation and so on and so forth. Or again, just like, uh, you know, the dirt, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, but same thing is you want to be able to know that, Hey, if I do X, I'm going to get Y result essentially. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, for us, you know, it was a, uh, it was more of a patchy overseed. It wasn't uh, full field. It was more, you know, Basically, to, to give the backstory, we would have a homestand and then Ohio High School State Championships, which would be 12 games in three days, and then another homestand, and then the Big Ten Tournament, which was like 16 or 20 or whatever, plus workouts and everything, and, and then another homestand. And so we would have, I don't know, like 60 games or something ridiculous in like five weeks, wow. and basically outfield position areas, umpire spots you know, all the, all the main wear areas where you slowly get wear, we would just lose those areas those first couple of years that I was there and just in an effort to save some money instead of doing large scale resods, you know, an overnight resod of all that stuff, we would just, I would throw rye down and have it pop real quick and get that coverage. I, in my opinion, it was just far too patchy. The aesthetics weren't what I wanted uh, it played fine, but, you know, to what Ryan was saying, uh, you know, that uniformity and, and predictability, you know, when you're putting down FERT, when you're putting down uh, fungicides, um, you know, it's going to act very differently on the rye than it will with the, uh, the bluegrass. And they have different susceptibilities and uh, different kind of resistance and stuff. So uh, it just, you know, Looking back, I, I regret that decision. Obviously, it saved a bunch of money, um, so it makes certain people happy. But from in the long term standpoint, um, it's not something that I would recommend. So, in terms of you talking know, about, sorry, Ryan, but I just wanted to ask no, one no, question here ahead. about uh, yeah, go ahead about your, you know, talking about budget and something. Just coming from the homeowner world, obviously, people have their own budget for their own home yard too. But it's on such a much smaller scale. So how much does that play into, I mean, I would assume obviously it plays huge into everything you do, but in terms of sort of the decision-making that you have to do and, you know, falling into a certain boundary there of what money is available and all that. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely always thinking about what everything that we do is going to cost. Um, you know, fortunately we've got a trade deal for our uh, granular fertilizer and, so that, uh, you know, we're able to trade out for uh, a couple pallets every year. And so I'm a little bit more liberal with that. And that obviously the, the availability of that uh, plays into my plan between granular fertilizer and foliar fertilizer. Um, now I'm still going to supplement with foliars as much as I can, as much as the budget allows. Um, and you know, when things are going well, we're drawing a lot of people and making a lot of money, then uh, it's a little easier to spend a few extra hundred bucks a week or whatever and, and you know, throw out some extra iron and some extra this or that to, to really juice things up and make stuff look nice. A year like this, when we have essentially zero money coming in and, and pretty much we're in the middle of 18 months without making any money whatsoever, and we're unfortunately one of the teams that did not get PPP or anything like that. So we're, uh, 
very financially strapped. Um, at that point, you know, I, this year I had to completely change my approach based on finances. So tell me about that. Cause I know that you, you, you went really hard with what you had, right? So you had uh, a great air fire, you had, you know, access to tines and everything that you would need there. And it wasn't that much money to, to supplement that relative to say a 1500 or $2,000 fungicide app. So, and I know that, you know, there's been some challenges there in, in just um, dealing with some root-borne issues and things like that here over the years. So, like, what was your mindset shift when you knew, okay, hey, if there's no money to spend, so how am I going to get through this? Yep. So, once, uh, I mean, everything pretty much locked down. It was, like, March 18th or something like that. Um, I had not, I don't do an early order fungicide program, so I didn't really have stuff on the shelf. Um, from a standpoint of fungicides, I did not have any anything whatsoever on the shelf as far as foliar fertilizers. I did have uh, my granular fertilizers in stock. And so, um, you know, I had to figure out, okay, I've got my granulars set to go. Um, we're not going to really be doing anything that's going to have a lot of eyeballs on it this year. So I'm not so much concerned with aesthetics. So I'm not going to push to try to find a way to acquire um, foliars and, and that sort of stuff. Um, so from there, um, since we did our field renovation three years ago, uh, the winter of 17, um, with the new side that came in, we've had very significant pressure with summer patch and just, you know, our everything kind of from the, the surface up, we've done fantastic, but, from the down in that root zone, those uh, couple couple inches down, we've had some significant root disease problems. So I wanted to try to approach that in a little to no income, you know, scenario. So I'm already somebody that airifies a lot. Um, probably had some people chatting a little bit this year. So from March until I don't know. Pretty much once in March, I, I did it every three weeks. I did it probably the last week of March, sometime in, I don't know, mid-April, and then maybe like the first week of May, I pulled cores. I pulled three-quarter inch cores at two and a half inch spacing. So uh, we've got a Toro 648. It's two inches side to side, and then we did two and a half inch spacing. So every three weeks, um, through spring, we pulled cores, swept them, got them off. I didn't have any money for sand to top dress, but I was mostly just trying to open up the root zone so that it could breathe, get air in there. Um, just continuing to try to remove any sort of sod layer that we've got, any organic buildup because we use well water. So we get, we always get a little bit of organic buildup. Um, so just trying to remove that and really open up the ground as much as we could, let it breathe, let it dry out. I cut way back on um, irrigation. I pretty much wouldn't run irrigation until I saw wilt just starting to come on. And then I'd start throwing water down. I really wanted to try to do everything I could um, to keep, you know, any kind of disease pressure naturally away. Um, so my goal was to do that five times before 4th of July. Um, come May, 
the company that was installing all our new netting kind of from foul pole to foul pole. Obviously, I'm sure most of your listeners know how all the professional baseball mandated you had to install netting. Mm -hmm. They decided to come out in those last three weeks of May. Um, That kind of prevented me from being able to pull cores the fourth time and sweep. And then come June, we started, uh, you know, some of the government restrictions backed off a little bit and we started going heavy duty into events. So that kind of stopped my fifth time. So pretty much starting the first week of June, we went out with either bayonets, bayonet tines, half inch solid tines, or three quarter inch solid tines. And every seven to 10 days, um, we'd put those in the ground. So I don't know, we might've done that a dozen times this year. Wow. So how often would you have done that in a normal year with, you know, with typical, you know, um, triple a schedule, how would that differ from 2020 to say 2019? Well, I probably still would have tried to pull cores twice in the spring. I probably would have tried to do it sometime before the season started. And then, um, sometime during a road trip, either in April or May or somewhere in there, if I could somehow make three times happen in the spring, then, you know, before June 1st, uh, that would have been the goal. Um, that's kind of my plan annually, Mm -hmm. basically from June 1st, um, Every time the team goes on the road, I'll do that same thing. I'll put either bayonets, half-inch tines, or solid tines in the ground. And then as soon as things start to cool down a little bit, um, whether it be August or September, then we start pulling cores again. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds like, you know, obviously this year you're able to step on the gas a little bit with the solid tines, and that helped. Where, uh, you know, where does this, in this whole kind of shift to, slow things down where do where do pgrs fit in for you so i've i've tried pgrs plenty of times in the past and i was never really able to get a good handle on having things work properly for for what i was trying to accomplish on the field and well, okay well let me stop you there what do you mean by that was that were you overregulated? were you underregulated and growing out too quick or what what did you feel like was the the tipping point there. Yeah, I probably didn't time things out right. I probably didn't go as much by growing degree days as much as I should have and did more by calendar days and more by availability versus really pushing to just get that app in. And so, yes, I mean, both all of those things that you just mentioned, sometimes it would be too big of a window and I would start growing out and then re-regulate and, you know, that's obviously bad for the plant. Sometimes I would just make apps too close together or at too high of a rate and it would overregulate. And, you know, we would have issues with uh, dealing with wear mm-hmm. or drought and things like that. And it would just, it would really be cut back on, on the strength of the plant. So, you know, I just, I, I had a big learning curve. I wasn't doing things with PGRs as well as I should have been. And then this year had a little bit more time to really sit down and and talk to, you know, guys like yourself and, you know, especially Steve, you know, Steve's a a wealth of knowledge down in Cincy and, uh, you know, pretty much this year, I kind of was mimicking um, some of his plan with PGRs and application rates and 
that sort of thing. And I wound up uh, extremely happy this year. We, you know, again, um, I was able to, once we started getting into event schedule, and I think at this point we're since June 15th at maybe 165, 170 events, um, you know, part of that was, okay, we'll, we'll throw you a few dollars to buy things. So I, I was able to buy, you know, PGRs and a couple apps worth of fungicides. So um, I did go very, very consistently with the, the PGRs this year. And um, I, I couldn't have been happier with the, the result. It cut back mowing to probably every three days for us, you know, so maybe two, possibly three times a week instead of essentially every day. Yeah, that's huge. So, you know, you've had the new field now. I do want to get to the renovation here in a, in a little bit, but just talk to me about, you know, some of the cultivars that come in on sod, you know, you don't, you didn't have a spec grown field, so it wasn't a contract grow. So you basically get what they give you. How have you tried to, I guess, change your genetics through seeding? Like what have you looked to and what is your, I guess, what is your evaluation process for selecting a seed, uh, a seed blend and then putting it out there? What are you going with now? Yeah. So once again, with the, the field renovation, uh, we had Tuckahosad go in and, uh, you know, I, I think they're pretty well known for sand-based sod on the, everything pretty much east of the Mississippi um, and north of the Mason-Dixon line, you know, whoever's not going with Bermuda, um, you know, unfortunately, the sod that we got, we, we laid sod the week of Christmas in December of 17. And so we kind of got uh, what was left and it wasn't good. We had, we had a lot of bad things with the sod. So immediately we went out and uh, we put 200 pounds of overseed with 200 pounds of bluegrass seed and since then we've supplemented over the past you know the following two or three years with those same three um it's been hampton bewitched and oh i can't think of the third one i i noble noble yep so yeah we've just tried to really push with those three and i know that uh steve was doing a lot of research on those and you know, wound up pretty happy with them as well. But I just, based on the, all the studies and everything, um, you know, whether it be root mass and, and, uh, you know, we've got some, some serious shade issues in right field. So I was trying to really get at least one or two that could deal with shade pretty well. Um, obviously, you know, we don't get very much snow in Columbus, but we get very cold and windy and, the grass really shuts down for us over the winter because it's, it's pretty much not protected by a blanket of snow. Uh, so just stuff that would uh, wake up in the spring pretty quick and, and also deal with the, the summer heat and stress. So just trying to look at all those things, you know, wear and tear and disease pressure and, and all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of, you know, the, the POA issue, everybody's always worried about POA annua and, you know, it's encroachment. I know you and I talk a lot about, um, you know, issues that we're facing and what we're seeing, especially come spring. 
So, you know, coming out that first spring and then thereafter, you know, what have you seen in terms of, you know, being very, very aggressive in spring with your cultivation, you know, so in terms of aerification and whatnot, have you, have you, you feel like you're seeing too much of it? Has it reduced, you know, year over year and what's your primary control strategy? Yeah. So typically, um, I'm fortunate to have, uh, one of the, the nicer staffs in minor league baseball typically will have three of us full time and, and two interns and then our game crew on game day. So I usually have the, the flexibility to put the effort in to do a lot of manual labor that maybe some other folks might not be able to do. So, you know, I'm very appreciative of that. This year obviously was different. Um, no interns had to furlough one of my full time guys. So it was just me and my assistant Connor um, all of this year. Um, you know, through all the, everything we had to do with the field, all the events and everything. Um, what we did pretty much over the past three years, um, like I said, the, the side that came in was, uh, it was very dirty. It was, we had, we had Bermuda grass growing in patches. We had a lot of weed. I think I counted 13 different, uh, types of weeds that were out there and just, uh, it was, it was really bad. So, um, pretty much from the beginning, we were getting, uh, for some of the bigger areas, we we're getting some side in and trying to cut that in for, you know, if we had a, a big stretch or like a, a full, basically roll that needed to get replaced, you know, we'd, we'd get a couple big rolls in and, and patch stuff out. But, uh, you know, I, again, tried with some PGRs, not as successfully, probably if I was using the plan, that we, the, the approach that we did this year, it might've helped a little bit, keep stuff from growing quite as quickly. Um, you know, guys like Keith Winter up in uh, Fort Wayne have done a really good job preventing some of the seed heading, um, you know, with some, some chemical approach. And so even if the, the those POA annual plants are popping, um, you know, they're not seeding. And so you're not getting nearly as much spread for us. Um, I did, I have done a whole lot of walk in the field, pretty much every mower pass with the pocket knife and, and cutting stuff out. And so those first couple of years in the spring, we would do somewhere between 450 and 600 spots and cut them out. And, um, you know, if it was small enough, we would just do sand and seed. If it was, you know, maybe a six inch, we'd do our six inch plugger. And then we've also got an 11 inch plugger. So we'd go into the side farm and, and plug out those bigger spots. Um, you know, I was aggressive again last fall doing that. And I think last fall we got up around 300, 350 spots this spring. I think we were down to like, I don't know, 150, 175. And then so far this fall, I've only done, I've only found maybe, I don't know, 50. So only 50. <laughs> yeah. I, I look at that just as dropping them. And you know, no, you're, 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 yeah, you're trending the right direction, no doubt. But it's just, I, uh, yeah, that's amazing is because, you know, you look out on these fields, you know, on television and things like that. And people think they're so pristine, but it, even so like, you walking every mower pass, you know, meticulously, you know, not just like one time, like, ah, uh, you know, I'll go over it once. I'll take a pass or two and we'll be good. Like just meticulously. And it's like, okay, Hey, we're still trending in the right direction, but there's still 50 plants out there. Well, I guess my point is, is that 
it will never be beaten back. You know, there's always going to be a population there and uh, the best tool that you could ever, ever, ever use is your hand, your eyes and a pocket knife, you know, and just it really is. And I, and I feel like I've got a decent eye for it. So like a lot in the summer, you know, I would have Connor on the, on the mower as well. But now, now that we've got kind of in the poet season, I basically kind of have retaken over mowing the outfield because I want my eyeballs on the grass, you know, the old saying is he who mows knows. Well, that's kind of the scenario here. And, you know, now that we've gotten into POA seed heading and, and growing, um, I want to be on the mower mowing the outfield and seeing every square inch. And so, I mean, I still will once a week walk the outfield, but at least if I'm on the mower two or three times a week, then, um, you know, that's, that's at least three times a week that I'm looking for the POA. And as soon as I see something, I can pop off the mower, cut it out real quick. And, you know, I've always got some sand and seed ready to go. I think but, that was really fascinating about the sod part. I mean, obviously as someone who's watching baseball or, you know, the people in the sands, they probably would think if a field's going to get sodded at a, a stadium like that, that you wouldn't be dealing with those types of issues or, the weeds that you had to deal with and all that stuff. So that's pretty fascinating to hear about that. Obviously not good for you, but. It's not good. And part of that is the fact that, uh, I mean, this is a whole tangent that I could, I could talk for two hours just about this, but I mean, there's incredibly few, there's only maybe one, obviously one big one. And then a few small contract side farms that grow sand based Kentucky bluegrass you know, in the country or at least in this half of the country. So the fact that everybody is going to one farm overloads that one farm. And when you've got the mentality that we we've kind of come back to almost the the seventies and eighties where these aren't ballparks anymore, they're, they're event facilities. And so every time the team's on the road, you've got a concert going on or you're switching over to a soccer field or a football field or whatever. And so you look at all, a lot of these NFL fields, MLB fields, and even a lot of the minor league fields and just a drop of a hat, they're residing, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 square feet of mm-hmm. sod. And this happens numerous times throughout the year. And when so many facilities are doing that, they just, you know, you run the well dry and, and so the quality of sod, because you have to turn it over so quick, yep. the quality of sod simply does not exist anymore. I was talking with the guys at Iowa State a little bit about that and how, you know, the turf world has become more of just events and not necessarily always just about managing that turf, but actually getting all these events done. So do you think that that could maybe push more people towards the artificial route in the future? Do you think that could have any play with that or it doesn't really matter? I mean, you see five major league baseball fields that are carpet now, and two years ago that was two. So that should answer your question right there. Mm-hmm. I think that you can see what was all over social media and stuff over the past over the first couple of weeks of the NFL season and a big push by the players. You know, that the players in NFL and MLB hate playing on synthetic fields. But the players unions aren't fighting it right now enough to keep it 
out of the facilities. And obviously we're at five in MLB now, and I could see that in the next two or three years going up to somewhere between eight and 10. You know, I can see a third of MLB fields being back to carpet. Just like I was saying, we're going back to the 70s and 80s um, where you saw a bunch of synthetic fields. What's going to happen in the NFL? Who knows? Obviously, those guys are, you know, the, the athletes, uh, you know, the pressure on their knees and ankles and, and that the lower body is so much more significant. You know, when their heads are slamming on the ground and you're seeing these concussions and stuff, you know, um, do you see that nearly as much with the natural fields as you do in the synthetic fields? I think that it's certainly worth looking at hard data information research, you know, how will that, you know, basically what will the players union do, you know, whether it be the NFL PA, the MLB PA, you know, what will they do to push to, to get grass in these facilities compared to synthetic? What are they okay with dealing with? Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of the things too, that I didn't know about, I mean, all the high schools around here, all the big high schools in Des Moines have moved to the synthetic fields and, you know, even the school that I used to work at, it was probably, I don't know, six or seven years into it after they had done their initial one that they had to completely redo it again because of just it wears out and all that stuff. So that's something that I don't think a lot of people know too is that the cost difference, you know, there's a bunch of data on it and you can look into that too, but it's not just putting the artificial field and it's there for the end of time. It doesn't really work like that either. No, there's a huge misconception that you put it in and it's, it's there for a very long lifetime and, and that's not the case. And they think that there's also the misconception that you put it in and you don't touch it and it still needs maintenance, especially when you're playing football and soccer and track and all these other different kinds of things out there. I mean, in the state of Ohio, you're not allowed to host a playoff game if you don't have a synthetic field. So, I mean, that that's something that has just happened over the past couple of years that, you know, a, a school, if they want a chance to, to host any playoff games, they have to install this, you know, $1.2 million field or whatever. Yep. So I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of powers that be and a lot of different pull. And I think they're starting to forget about the health and well-being of the athletes. No, there's no question about that. And just from the from the business side, you know, looking at it from our point of view, Wes, you know, as sports field managers, I look at it from the high school point of view. Okay, so well, let's let's back up for a second. So we look at the NFL and we look at what uh, Treader from the Browns, who's the NFLPA president, says, and he says that the data doesn't lie that there is uh, categorically more injuries on synthetic than there are on natural grass, right? Lower extremity injuries. It's also bared out in a, in a study that was done, I think like two years ago, it was put out in 2018 by a couple uh, biomechanical guys. There's also a turf guy from Penn state on there. So, you know, they're kind of finding the same thing. And the, the thing that you've got to look at here too, is that these are the best maintained fields in the sport in the world. So now let's take it and extrapolate it down to a small college or a high school or a middle school or something like that, where the maintenance just isn't there quite as well. And it turns into a whole different scenario. I think the gap widens probably in most senses. Now you, you know, you take away the fact that these aren't, uh, you know, 350 pound 
you know, superior athletes, you know, versus a high school kid, let's say, but there's still this whole idea that, well, it's just safe for surface because it's been, you know, it's been changed over to turf and that's just, that's simply not the case. So the thing that always kind of blows my mind there is that, you know, usually in those cases, it's, it's a uh, field that's in poor condition as a natural field. And so we've got, let's just say a $400,000 asset. And, and somebody says, well, you know what, we're not taking care of this really well. So you know what we're going to do, you know, what we're going to do to fix this. We're going to put in a million dollar asset and see how good we take care of that. You know, that's like saying, I can't take care of my Honda Accord. So I'm going to buy a Lamborghini, you know, like what the hell sense does that make? But you know, that, that's, that's kind of where things are at. So I think it will be interesting to see how that moves forward, but you're right. The MLB, I think in general has a, uh, an issue now where the can of worms has been opened and it's now just sort of a time crunch of at what point do we get to that critical mass where, okay, we're going to flip back to, to uh, natural grass. I guess that's, that's a good question for you. Cause you, you were sort of at the very tail end of this uh, at Cooper stadium in Columbus, which for those of the listeners that don't know, very old stadium built in the thirties um, just on the edge of downtown Columbus that, was host to uh, Columbus's uh, minor league teams and the Jets and yeah yeah and the, yeah many different names. The it was for a long time the AAA uh, affiliate of the Yankees and, it's, and when Wes was working there back in the day, it was. Now they're the Indians, AAA uh, affiliate for the Indians. But I guess in that late '90s period when we were sort of at the end of the cookie cutter phase and kind of coming back into say like the uh, Camden Yards, Jacobs Field slash Progressive Field days. What was the impetus for them to change, even at that level, at the AAA level, back to natural? Well, yeah, I mean, there was that huge push that if if all the MLB players were going to be playing on grass, you know, you wanted to mirror that with your prospects and, and your, your minor leaguers to be as close to your major league field as possible. And so you wanted to mimic that, you wanted to mirror that, and, you know, a whole lot of facilities got rid of their synthetic fields over that, uh, over the nineties and early two thousands. Um, I think that, uh, again, if you kind of look big picture and some of the other things I was talking about a little bit earlier, um, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, MLB and the players association, their, their contract ends as soon as the world series ends here in a, another week and a half. So they are renegotiating, a complete new deal and hopefully things get worked out and we don't have a strike going into next year. But at the same time, major league baseball and minor league baseball, that agreement has gone to the wayside and they are negotiating a new deal. And one of the biggest aspects of that is facility quality and field quality. And again, what we're seeing is not only at the major league level, and NFL level, but also at the major league baseball level. Um, again, we've moved away from being ballparks and baseball facilities and moved into being event spaces. So, you know, the minute the last baseball game of a homestand is done, we're prepping for that first event that might be first thing the next morning, might be that night. You know, we might have a 11 o'clock gateway game and, and you know, have an extra event that evening. So, um, again, I feel fortunate that I'm at a facility and with an organization that I had 
in the past have had enough staff to, to deal with things fairly adequately, but there's a lot of organizations that did not provide that staff or equipment or budget. And, um, you know, unfortunately the fields have just gotten very poor. And because of that, I think there's going to be a big push, especially as you see, you know, like I said, we're up to five at the major league level, you know, that can of worms is open. We're going back to synthetic fields and the major league level. So I can, guarantee you you're going to start seeing a whole lot of synthetic at the minor league level and especially with this i guess i can't guarantee it but i i suspect strongly that uh, you know especially with this new agreement between mlb and minor league baseball you know with such a focus being on facility quality um they're going to look at that and and see okay what's it going to cost to hire people to maintain a natural field what's their what do they think it's going to cost to maintain the synthetic field? Mm-hmm. And I think that you're going to start seeing a lot of synthetic fields at the minor league level. So what do you hear from players? Cause I mean, that's part of your job and, and whether people know that or not on the outside, I think that's an interesting part that I've always learned, especially about baseball in particular at the professional level is that relationship building that goes on between groundskeeper and players. And especially when, you know, you're at the collegiate level and you have players in the program for four or five years, or you're at the professional level where they're sort of coming up through and seeing all the different stadiums that are at, you know, each respective level. What do you hear from them as far as what a, a good natural surface plays like, as opposed to synthetic? So I guess, you know, that's, that's a two part question. What do you hear good and bad about, you know, different surfaces and not trying to call anybody out, but just, you know, what's good, what's bad on the natural side. And then what is it that they maybe don't like about synthetic and what it might, uh, what it might mean for them from a playability aspect or a career aspect? Yeah. I mean, uh, like you said, we have to have a, a very strong relationship, at least me as the, the, the top person managing the playing surface, I have to, have a a great relationship with our coaching staff. You know, I meet with our manager daily, you know, we'll text back and forth when they're on the road. Um, I have to have a good relationship with our training staff and with the players. You know, I I talk to our infielders every day, ask them how, um, you know, how the field's playing, maybe while they're taking their early work, maybe during BP, you know, what do you like? What do you not like? How's it going? Um, You know, we, talk to our pitcher and our pitching coach all the time about how the mound is, how the bullpen is, um, outfielders, they can deal with the outfield, but, um, you know, we'll always want pitchers wanting taller grass. We'll want infielders wanting, you know, everybody, you know, hitters want shorter grass so the ball can skip through. (laughs) We want pitchers want taller grass, but, um, absolutely. I mean, every time they come home from a, a road trip, we, we always hear about, the two or three places they played, which ones they liked, which ones they didn't, um, who they liked as a, a grounds crew, who they didn't like, you know, personally, we'll hear all that kind of stuff. And those stories, you know, we'll get, uh, you know, minor league guys or major league guys that come down on rehab or maybe come, you know, got sent down cause they weren't doing so well for a little bit. Um, you know, I'll hear about, all the different major league facilities and and what places they like and what they don't. So, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. They talk about it. They pay attention to it because it affects their play. It it affects their paycheck. 
because if the field plays well for them, it allows them to play at their maximum ability and gives them the best chance to get up, make that major league contract and make millions of dollars. If the field plays like crap, it hurts their ability to get to that level and make all that money. So it, it, you know, it's a huge deal to them and it impacts them strongly. So what do you hear about on the synthetic side? You know, when, when, a when a team does go play there and certainly it's now become more prevalent in MLB than it is still in uh, most levels of the minor leagues now, but what do you hear about from people that, that do play on some of these newer synthetic fields? You know, what are their gripes and, is there anything that they, they do enjoy about it? Um, I guess compared to the bad fields, they at least like the consistency of it. But outside of that, um, just pretty much across the board, the majority of them don't like it from a standpoint of, they say, you know, after three or four days out there, it hurts their knees. It hurts, you know, just standing out on the synthetic field for, you know, between BP and then the game for maybe four hours a day, five hours a day. Um, you know, those, those hot summer afternoons when it's, you're taking BP at four o'clock in the afternoon and it's just sun beating down, you know, that field might be 150, 155 degrees. So, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's miserable. That's no fun. Um, so, you know, they talk about that and, um, again, the ball will play different, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, with all these infill systems and, and the rubber in there, you know, the, the ball's going to be a little bit more springy. So you might get some more ground rule doubles or you might see uh, more of that Baltimore chop where, you know, if you can kind of get a ball out into the into the carpet and rubber ahead of the ahead of home plate, you might bounce the ball over the infielders or get a big hop over the outfielders and that sort of stuff. So um, it plays different. And it also just affects them on a day-to-day basis in ways that they're just, that they don't like. Yeah. So, I mean, so here's one last question on this topic. And I think it's an interesting one is that, you know, you've got two, I can think of two facilities in in MLB on the East and West coast with, you know, Petco and um, Fenway that have been very successful with a lot of, uh, events and also still doing baseball. So how, is that, you know, the path forward that, you know, we still protect some of the originalism of the game, but we still have to do and make, you know, still do events and make money and things like that. Do you think that's a viable model going forward? Cause it seems like, you know, they've been doing it for multiple years now and it's been pretty effective for them. And I don't know, I guess that's, that's my question to you is, is there a path forward there with these, um, road trip changeouts and, and constant, you know, beat of the drum as far as the event schedule goes relative to the baseball schedule. I think it, there absolutely is a viable model for that. I think that you pretty much throw out maintaining the grass. Um, that's not a thing that, um, you know, I, I, I hate to like pull the curtain back a little bit, but you know, a lot of these, <laughs> MLB. I mean, honestly, you know, I'm not trying to, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's, it's, it's real talk. I get it. I get it. I'm not trying to knock anybody or take any credits away from anybody, but a lot of these facilities that are resodding every time the the team goes on the road, because there's a concert, um, 
they're not maintaining the turf. They pretty much mow it and, you know, maintain the dirt, which obviously all the dirt and edges and all that kind of stuff is still a huge deal, but um, they're not maintaining the grass because it's new grass, you know, every two weeks or once a month or whatever. So um, that that's in itself aside. Um, I think the part of this is we need more sod farms to be able to provide quality turf to be able to replace the fields um, because there's this, you know, that you start looking at these $200 million salary or uh, $200 million payrolls, $250 million payrolls. And, you know, the, the amount of money that um, is exchanged for MLB and NFL, um, that money has to come from somewhere. And so, you know, obviously there's billion dollar TV contracts and, and incredible amounts of, merchandise sales and all that sort of stuff and sponsorships, but part of that also on the day to day. And, you know, some of these facilities are being rented from counties or cities or whatever, but to maintain uh, that relationship and pay for their day to day staff, you know, you're hosting concerts and big corporate events and things like that, that do destroy the field. And, you know, that's, uh, it's just, part of the situation now, again, we've kind of gone to that as being the accept, accepted way of things in, in higher end sports. And um, unfortunately, part of that is it's driving away a lot of sports turf managers because um, a lot of folks got into it for that sport. And now that we're just supervising an event space, um, you know, the love of it has kind of disappeared and it's become a very high hour, high stress, high pressure scenario that's uh, um, maybe not equating to, to salaries and paychecks. Um, so I think that that is one thing that is going to need to change is just the way that staffs are put together and how these, you know, with these high events, facilities, you know, you just need a, a bigger staff to maintain things. But I think that we also can do that with more people and with more sod farms providing good quality sod. Um, they can come in and, and, and replace things literally overnight that you might have a concert the night before a homestand starts. And even through a rainy night, you're trying to cut stuff out and replace and all that sort of stuff. And you know, there's a lot of difficult scenarios. I mean, look at uh, look at last fall when you had Miami University played a, a Saturday night game, an eight o'clock game, and then the Dolphins had a one o'clock game the next day, and, and they had to swap over the field and change out the end zones and midfield logo and all that sort of stuff. And they had rain throughout the game, and it was just a nightmare. But they got it done. We're always the people that get it done, regardless. I mean. It's just the way it is. There you go, Ryan. You need to start a sand-based sod farm. Oh, I think Wes is going to beat me to that. Uh, <laughs> that's the, he's going to retire when he's uh, when he's forty here at the end of the month, and he's going to go do that. I think so. No, I mean that that's a great great point about just how you know we we rag on synthetic for being disposable, but in at the highest levels. And I think some of this could really matriculate down to the lower levels too, where, um, 
okay, Miami, for example, you just brought that up. They just did a home and home. So they had Miami, University of Miami at home on Saturday this past weekend. They had the Dolphins at home on Sunday. And the field wasn't terrible, but it was not going to pass its field certification test for the NFL in two weeks. So they're, they're on a bye week this week. And the Dolphins are back home again on the 1st of November. So Monday morning, right after that Dolphins game, field's pretty good. You know, probably could have healed in a little bit, that kind of thing. But they stripped the whole thing off. You know, completely removed it with uh, with the coral by phrase mowing it and getting it all out of there and then are preparing to resod it here. So it's going to have, you know, nine, ten days to grow in. Um, be ready to go as soon as they're, you know, as soon as they're back and it's going to be fine. You're probably not going to even notice on television, but that's just how good they've gotten. So, yeah, I think you're right that it's, it's uh, more of a supply issue in that sense where... Um, a lot of the sod, like, you know, for your project, for instance, that would have been top shelf quality. Like that was out on some NFL field, you know, a month or three before it even got, you know, your stuff would have got put in the ground, say in December of 17. So well, yeah, we got pushed back by two weeks because the Eagles needed to replace their field. And so they took priority. <laughs> Obviously they were in season and damn you know, the Eagles NFL field over, uh, minor league field and again i'm not knocking them and and i understood the situation but i mean we got pushed by two weeks because the eagles needed to get done before we did now i think what that was that the season ryan i'm knocking them because i hate them so well they just because they beat you in the nfc championship game but i think that was the year i legit think that was the year that they had the whole like miracle thing in in the dome and then they went and just got their ass beat in Philadelphia the following week, like they were just, yeah, I think that's not, right. Yeah. I think that's right. So, so see, you know, everybody, everybody got screwed by the Eagles that you Ryan, Ryan Nor got screwed by the Eagles. Cause he's a huge Vikings fan and they got trounced by the Eagles. And then they went on winning a super bowl and then West got screwed over because he didn't get the top quality primo stuff. Exactly. So. We both got screwed. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why it's easier for West and I because we're just Browns fans, and you know we're 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 just happy. We think we won the Super Bowl because we're four and two right now, and yeah, you know we've got an injured quarterback. So, but yeah. that's 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 beside the point. Someone so. tried to argue with me this weekend after the terrible game that. Uh, you know, at least oh the you, Browns. Oh no, the Vikings. Oh okay, yeah, you could yeah. you could have gone either way there. So I was just making sure. No, they were like, well, you know, name off a, a team. Like, well, at least you're not a Browns fan. At least you're not a Jets fan. At least you're not whatever. It's like, yeah, but we're sixty years into this. My dad, I was talking to him this weekend, and he's you know been watching the Vikings since day one, and he's finally just like, yeah, I don't really care anymore. I'm giving up on this team. <laughs> like. It took 60 years, but he's there finally. I, I, I'm not giving up, but it's more of one of those things that I go into Sunday with zero expectations. That's you know? the way to I do just, it. You just, you, you can't get too high. You can't get too low. So, but no, that's interesting. So that kind of, it, it, it sort of, you know, launches us into this whole point of, you know, Wes and your time there, it would have been 2017, you know, that you started planning this renovation, right? So the field was originally opened in 2009 right and yeah, 17 right. yeah so 17 was your your renovation year and you had some big events coming up that following year and that was maybe some of the impetus there but i guess take us through the process of okay you know that you need to get stuff done and how invasive is it going to be is it just going to be stripping the sod off and you know 
maybe laser grade the infield, a couple other things, and, and you're good to go. How did you come up with the idea that um, there was really some, some, some substantial structural things within the construction of the original field that needed to be changed? And how did you decide that? And how did you convey that to the powers that be? Well, you're right in that we had some big events coming up that uh, um, were part of scheduling when the field renovation would occur. And so we, we knew about three years out that we were going to be hosting the minor league all-star game in July of 18 and the triple or the triple a all-star game. And then the triple a championship game in September of 18, we were going to have both of them the same year. And the question was posed to me, would you rather do a field renovation before or after? And I said, I'd rather do it today when that question was asked because <laughs> the field was, it was poorly designed and there were just, there were a plethora of issues and, you know, Ryan, that you were able to come out and see stuff and I was pointing things out and, and we overcame things as best as we could, but there was a lot in the design and, and construction that just, didn't make any common sense. And um, real quick on that, can you kind of take me through? This is a this is a great story, but take me through the original construction and the bullpen issue. Can you tell everybody that story of where you got sure. to in, in in the process? I mean, that you weren't there at this point, but what ended up happening with the bullpens when they were going through construction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I obviously I wasn't there, but uh, I mean, the story that was told to me, I guess I can't verify it for fact is, is not being there personally, but, uh, basically they built everything. They built the ballpark and, and put the field in and pretty late into the process realized somebody pointed out the fact that there was no bullpens anywhere. So we wound up having bullpens in the, in the warning track on the field because there was no place else to put them. I would love for them to be off the field. And, and I beg every, every off season to, make that our next year's, you know, big process or big project to, to move them off the field somewhere. But, uh, yeah, I think it was sort of by mistake. I mean, it, I think the fans like seeing them on the field to an extent, but, uh, the players hate it down there. Uh, the groundskeepers hate it down there and it's just, uh, it's not really safe and it's not really a, a good scenario to have the bullpens on the field. No, it's a super old school vibe, like, you know, walking into Wrigley or something like that, where it's just like, you know, you're looking around and bam, I mean, it is right there. And your foul territory is, it's not Oakland, you know, like it is, it is tight Yeah, and they are slammed in there. So it's a, a, that just, again, it's one of those things where, um, you know, something as, as deep as building a $50 million ballpark in the middle of the 14th largest city in the country. And, you know, Hey, Charlie, where's the bullpens? Well, Marty, I don't know. Where are they? <laughs> they <aren't laughs> well, didn't, you, didn't, didn't, didn't you put them somewhere? Well, no, I thought you did. I mean, I don't know. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation because yeah, that was definitely a big skid mark in your shorts moment of man. We really screwed this up. Like, oh, I yeah. think the uh, I think the Iowa Cubs have the same like their bullpens is, are like it's just right off first base. They're kind of right off in the foul territory. It's not very big either, but 
Yeah. yeah, they then that's that's I don't know if that's a, like a design thing, but again, with it just being like a new ballpark, it's just it's amazing that it got to that point. So okay, so we're back in 2017, and you know, I, I you know I do remember going out there with you and, and looking at things, and you know, you had this volcano of an infield, like somebody had decided that they were going to build this you know this massive hump in the middle of the field, but oh by the way. We're going to create a gully in foul territory right in between the baselines and the dugouts. And then, you know, transitioning to the outfield grade, you know, for, for the folks that are listening at home, you know, the, the grade tolerances on these fields, some of them are built dead flat. Like there, there's enough internal drainage and enough of a perk rate in the sand that the water can move down fast enough that there is no need for surface drainage. Yeah, now, that's completely flat. Which is, I mean, that kind of makes sense because they're not, they know, they're not in a, uh, an area that's prone to a lot of rain. They can probably control it a little bit better, you know, whereas we get those big, you know, gully washing thunderstorms in the middle of the, uh, of the summer. But still, so then, you know, you've got to contend with all these fixed grades, you know. So, you know, I remember looking at that with you and we're looking at, you know, your shop floor, which is a big door out in right field just outside the foul line. You've got dugout be- um, steps you know, on either side coming up and, and surveying all these points. So just, you know, take me through your mindset of, hey, I've got this opportunity to do this right. Why at no point did you ever compromise and say, ah, screw it. Like, it's just going to be easier to do it this way. Just do it. Because I never saw that. And I'm just wondering, like, there and there was hundreds of these uh, these opportunities for you to do it. Why didn't you do it? And what, you know, what were you thinking about when you made all these decisions? Have you ever met somebody more stubborn and bullheaded than me? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, I mean, maybe, but I, again, like it was just, you know, there was, there was some, you know, some interesting times there where I think, you know, your, your level of being principled was perfect, you know, and, and and it did it was always for, Hey, this is what's best for the field. It's not what's easiest for the contractor. It's not maybe what's going to be easiest for me, you know, right now or in the long term or something like that, but it's what's best for the field. So was there ever any pushback in your own mind? Did you ever like wrestle with some of these things or was there ever any pushback, you know, internally um, within the club? You're like, come on, Les, like just, you know, relent, give it, you know, give these guys a break, whatever. Was there ever, ever any of that that you felt like, pressure to to cave no not at all um i guess that's kind of a two-pronged question or uh, again i could tangentialize on this for <laughs> an hour in itself but uh i mean from the standpoint of from the 2010 season through the 17 season i'd spent seven years maintaining a really poorly designed and built field so i for seven years it was burned into my head how poorly, how, how difficult my life was because of the way the field was built, designed and all that sort of stuff. And so because of that, I mean, again, I, we had found out, you know, two or three years out that we were going to be hosting these events and um, pretty much immediately knew at that point when we would do the field renovation. And so I spent a solid two years reaching out to people all over the world, obviously, um, you know, colleagues around MLB and minor league baseball, but also, 
um, you know, folks at the parks and rec level, at, at college levels, people, you know, soccer friends and stuff overseas. And, and I reached out to everybody that would talk to me and, and respond to me. And again, uh, you get way past the point of embarrassment or anything. And I just had the, the same big, long list of questions that I would ask everybody. And just kind of over those two years, compiled all the answers and see what made what seemed to make the most sense to me and what I really wanted um, from a standpoint of organization pushing back. Um, no, I mean, nobody else, nobody else comes down on the field and, and does anything. And honestly, nobody really has an idea. I mean, I think that it's pretty, uh, pretty commonplace around professional sports that nobody really understands what goes into maintaining the field. And so I really didn't get any pushback, feedback, or anything at all from anybody. It was pretty much, uh, uh, we understand that you're the specialist in this field and uh, uh, we're going to trust you to, to make the right decisions. And unless the, the costs start getting astronomical, you know, that's when we have to start debating some different aspects of it. And I mean, there were some things that we looked at that got cut out due to, uh, due to costs. And I, I really wish at this point over the past three years, um, the amount of issues we've had with our irrigation system, um, with the main line and some of the piping under the warning track, I wish that we would have spent an extra couple hundred thousand dollars and, uh, replaced all of the PVC and, and changed the, the setup with that. But, um, that'll be my next project whenever, you know, another 10 years down the road, whenever money becomes available again. Yeah. Well, so in that, in that vein though, like what were some of the pain points that you had identified in those seven years? What were some of like, what were the top, you know, two or three things that you were like, we've got to get this and this and this fixed no matter what. So I think one of the, the biggest things that was noticeable to organization, front office, players, fans, everybody across the board was um, rain scenarios. And we were losing, you know, we might lose five or six games a year to rain when um, just honestly we shouldn't. And especially with the new field that we just don't. Um, and a big part of that was the warning track. Um, the way that the architect designed the warning track is it angled back to the field and used, literally uses the field as the drain, um, not only for, you know, all the water on the warning track, but basically our concourse, you know, every single, <laughs> that all of the concourse rain comes down through the gates, the field gates, and, and also kind of drains down to the field. So, um, we were taking a, an exceptional amount of rain onto the field and we'd get the, the infield good to go, pull off the tarp and, and be ready to play. And um, I mean, it just looked like there was a moat around the field. I mean, the edge of the grass and the warning track would just be inches of water and it just, it, it had nowhere to go. It had locked up. I mean, you get, you would get so much organic in the grass in those first 10, 12 feet off of the edge of the warning track. The warning track was just so saturated and locked up. There was, you know, there's, there's not drainage under it. There's no drains over there. So there was nowhere for water to go. So literally we would lose 
we would lose games to terrain because the warning track was a moat, even though we would have the infield and all the, you know, all the grass area and dirt area good to go. So I think that, uh, you know, especially on Friday nights and Saturday nights when we make a whole lot of money, um, that was unacceptable. And I think that as that started to compound, those issues started to compound and we started losing more games. I think that, uh, it became evident that we needed to do this sooner than later, just so we could be getting our games in. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the most visible thing. Um, obviously it was a big deal to me. It wasn't the biggest deal to me, but that was, uh, um, that was obviously something that everybody noticed. Yeah. And I think that's one thing too, is that people don't realize is that's, you know, for you guys at, at that level, and like you said, a Friday, Saturday night or, I mean, really any night it's a, that's a, you know, a six figure hit right there to not have a game and, and to make it up as part of a, you know, a seven inning double header or something like that. Like that's just not paying the same amount of bills and bringing in the same amount of revenue that you would uh, for a primetime game. So yeah, that I think that's one thing that, you know, it's different at a professional level that would be at a homeowner level, but still like there's still the whole, ROI thing where, you know, and especially with drainage, I think that's one thing that often gets overlooked at at every level. You know, the three, the most, three most important things we need to have good turf or drainage, drainage, drainage. And it so often gets overlooked or it gets, um, you know, engineered incorrectly or something like that to where um, people are putting in wrong materials, all that sort of stuff. And so it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, out of all the things that, that go into a professional baseball field, that your biggest thing was literally the, the warning track around the field that, that held water and was incorrectly drained. You know, that's just that, that, that shouldn't even be an issue, you would think. Sure. But here, here you are, and so you take care of that. So I guess from all those pain points that you addressed, and you mentioned irrigation is still one that, you know, you want to you put back on the front burner here soon, but from what you envisioned to what got executed. uh, Did you think, how close did you hit to the mark? I mean, I I couldn't really be happier with everything that we did. Um, It pretty much came out is exactly as I envisioned it in my head, exactly how I drew it on paper. Um, Like I said, I, I did the design for this round and spent two years doing it. And, um, fortunately we had a contractor that I'm friends with that were a group of people that cared about the end result and they worked with us and they, it wasn't, it wasn't a job to them. I mean, yes, it was a job and, and it was, you know, they were getting paid for it. However, it was something that they realized what every single step of the process, how it was going to impact me. I mean, never mind the fact that I was there every second that they were there, right, looking over their shoulders and just, you know, chirping a little bit about, eh, maybe move that over a half inch or a quarter mm-hmm. inch or whatever. Again, I'm very OCD. I'm very anal about detail and, and a lot of things. And so I did, I pushed very hard and I know 
and I apologize to those guys again. One of those guys I was texting this evening, and uh, you know, still friends with them. And you know, I apologize, but it, it, you know, in that moment, you have to push to get exactly what you want because you know, in the moment, you can say, "Ah, oh, screw it," and you know, half-ass it, and then for the next ten years, have to deal with that. No doubt. So, I mean, that's where. Um, every single detail was just so important to me from the thought process and planning standpoint to the execution of the um, design and install. Hmm. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about is probably your favorite subject. And we probably could go for several hours on this, but let's talk about the non-grass stuff. Let's talk about the dirt because you always say, Oh, you know, I love the grass and everything, but I'm a dirt guy first and foremost. So I guess, you know, at the, at the MLB level and when folks, you know, that are listening or watching a game, take us through what the pro the process is during, you know, a normal homestand to get that ready to play for just that three hour period. What does that, you know, that 24 hour process look like from, you know, it's the second game of a seven game homestand and we're at, you know, we just caught the last out. We're in post game. Take me through all the way until the next game, the next day at seven o'clock. Well, let me just preface that a little bit. I just heard <laughs> a week or two ago, somebody was telling me about a project that they were uh, working on or bidding on or something. And the spec came in at installing like 16 inches of infield material or something just absurd. And then tilling you in. I, just tons and tons and pallets of like conditioner and stuff. Um, you know, folks, if you're at a high school or a college or a park and rec and you're, you're doing a field renovation and, and you're, you're looking to change up your infield, the max complete max that you need to deal with, with an infield is four inches. Okay. I mean, you do not ever need to, <laughs> to do anything more than four inches deep with an infield. I mean, we did a four inch cap only because if we ever do like amendments or renovation with stuff, I want to be able to till in the top three inches and have that one inch buffer. I mean, mm-hmm. probably two inches would be enough and, and certainly three would be enough. I mean, three is, I try to never deal with more than the the three inches. So if you're ever, if you have somebody trying to sell you on doing six inches or eight inches or 16 inches of infield material, they're trying to go buy themselves a whole fleet of new cars or equipment or something. <laughs> that is completely Uncle, unnecessary. Uncle Pablo wants to make them a, a very good deal on some stuff, right? Yes. Yes. They are, uh, they are doing some very bad things to you. <laughs> So, like I said, you know, that's one thing that people don't see is that whole period. You know, I, I think people are used to that, 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 that attend ball games and see that, that light water where you really, all you're trying to do is knock down dust and, and probably not really manage moisture so much in that last water before the game, but kind of take us through that, that period in between, I guess, what does it take to make that surface? And, and here's what I'll say for the folks that play golf is, and, and, and I'm coming from the golf background and, and Wes is much more experienced in sports turf than I am even, but uh, I liken it to a golf green without grass because we, we so uh, diligently work on surface performance and moisture management and playability and all these things and ball roll and smoothness and everything on a putting green. 
And really, to me, when I came over to SportsTurf, I thought, man, this is great because it's really just a green that doesn't need to be living. Like, I can do whatever I want with water, but I've got to be judicious with it, and I've got to be very calculated with it. And so I've found that you, and there's a lot of great practitioners out there in our field, don't get me wrong, but I think you are one of the ones that take it to, to the nth degree because you know what the limits are and you know how to push them because you have pushed them. So just, just take us through that whole thing of, okay, we're in post game. We're getting ready for a 7 PM game next day. Yeah. So in a homestand and I mean, that even extends out to, you know, the days, you know, two or three days ahead of time, but uh, you know, especially in a homestand, you know, when we're at full staff in the middle of the season, pretty much my entire focus, obviously, yes, I'm overseeing the entire field, but uh, pretty much my entire focus is on the dirt the entire day, every day of the homestand. And, and the rest of my staff is dealing with the mowing and, and the mounds and bullpens and plate and base paths and rewarding track and all that kind of stuff. I just, I literally, I spend my entire focus on the dirt. And so usually, um, you know, again, depending on the event schedule and the weather, um, you know, three days out from a homestand or so we'll start, um, you know, fortunately I've got some dirt irrigation. I've got two zones that we can flood things out with the press of a button and, you know, that saves a lot of energy and a lot of effort. So, um, you know, starting three or four days out from a homestand, um, two or three times a day, we'll put the dirt completely underwater to where it's standing water. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. you know, until we get to maybe two days out from the homestand or the day before the homestand, we'll start backing off so that, you know, at that point we, we should have in that four inch cap of infield material that I was talking about, you know, we, we keep it pretty compressed. And so there's not a whole lot of pore space in there, but we need, we need that moisture in that full four inch cap. We need that full four inch depth to be at full saturation because water is dirt glue. Okay. That's kind of the, the term that we use is dirt glue for water because it holds it together. It's what binds that sand, silt and clay together and gives you really good stability and playability. Okay. So that's why, um, you know, if, if you let stuff be too dry, and it's out there cracking and getting powdery and stuff. And then you get a rain event or you get wet, it's going to get muddy and loose real quick. Uh, whereas when we keep it nice and moist and, and you know, compact, uh, we can take a whole lot of rain and still play and, and have it stay relatively stable and, and firm. Okay. So, you know, that day before the homestand, I'm out there nailing it, making sure that our uh, conditioner levels are adequate. Um, I'm one of the probably one or two unique individuals in the country in professional baseball that um, I will maintain the infield with just expanded shale. It's just like a, um, so we don't use calcine clay except for in rain events. Okay. So that's a little bit different. The expanded shale is something that has kind of hit the market over the past six to eight years, kind of become more commonplace. And, and a lot of folks do a, a blend of the two products. Um, I really like the way that it acts. It's, it's baked at a much higher temperature than calcine clay. And so it's very stable in that when we drag it or we roll it and do everything else that we do to maintain it, it doesn't break down like calcine clay does. Calcine clay is baked at a much lower temperature and it's got a ton of pore space, which is great for absorbing moisture 
but it's also very fragile. You start dragging it and raking it and rolling it, and you literally just shatter those particles, and it just it, you get a nice layer of dust on the surface. And so, um, because I'm also somebody that rolls a little bit more frequently, and so again, kind of coming back full circle to where we were talking about before, you know, sometimes um, maybe I'll roll a little bit too frequently, and I'll hear about how our, our infield is a little bit harder than it should be. You know, okay, so I'll try to rectify that with a little bit of water in or a little extra nail in or uh, maybe a little bit of extra conditioner, um, you know, but kind of expanding on the, on the nailing, you know, when we nail drag, uh, we're not trying to go more than like a quarter inch in. Okay. We're just trying to erase cleat marks or I, whatever else might've been out there, you know, scuff marks from baseballs or whatever, basically just mm-hmm. that, you know, if you start getting real deep, you're going to start moving material around and losing your grade and you're going to wind up having loose material because you can only really compact it so much on a game day. Okay. So I really only, I'm just scratching the surface enough to erase cleat marks, drag stuff out. Um, I guess I should say first thing in the morning, every morning I'll go out and I'll hand rake the entire infield. Okay, so I'll, I'll start from the back edge where the back arc is, and I'll pull up. Okay, so the, my rake is four feet wide, so I'll go all the way around. It's about 245 feet around the, the radius, and I'll, I'll pull from the back to the front. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to get every bit of grass clippings, sunflower seeds, gum, anything from the night before, and getting... I, I try to get all of the debris and everything that's unsightly and, and uh, mostly aesthetic. I mean, none of those things really affect ball play, but, uh, you know, try to get all that stuff up. Again, it's one of those steps I try to take to, to make ourselves an elite playing surface. Um, mm-hmm. You know, part of that, I wind up pulling up some conditioner you know, on a daily basis. And, and, you know, I might pull up half a wheelbarrow worth, over the course of the infield every day. And so we'll, uh, we'll contain that and we'll, uh, we won't just throw that away. I will, uh, I'll put that into totes and save it. And once we fill up a tote, then um, I donate it to people, you know, people like Ryan who helped me out in an in infinite amount of ways. And so that's my way to say thank you and, and try to help him out as well. So, you know, I, I really try to not waste material when we don't have to. And, you know, he was a, he was an enormous blessing and saved us a lot of money um, with, with the relationship during the, uh, the field renovation, just in things that um, he was able to do for us and hopefully that we were able to do for him. So hopefully it was no, a chaotic no. re- relationship. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll go out and rake first. Um, it'll, it'll, at the same time as I'm cleaning the conditioner, it'll also flip the conditioner and open it up, let the sun hit it, any wind hit it and let that conditioner dry. Um, again, this is a little bit backwards than 99% of people do it. But at that point, as soon as the conditioner is dry enough for me to get on it, I'll go out and roll it with our one and a half ton roller. Again, this is not every day, but it's, you know, maybe if we had a, a really wet day and we got a little bit more chewed up or whatever, then I'll go out and roll it. If it's just normal situation, then maybe every third day. So maybe the day before homestand and then maybe once or twice in the homestand Mm -hmm. and it'll kind of firm it up. And then I'll go out with the nails 
and I'll do kind of a, a long drag with the nails and then little circles and then big circles. And again, I'm just trying to go in that top quarter inch, but, uh, Again, depending on if I'm doing, if I do little circles, that's more aggressive. If I do big circles, that's less aggressive. If I do straight lines, that's the least aggressive. Mm -hmm. okay, so again, depending on how deep I'm trying to get and what I'm trying to do will depend on what pattern I'm taking. And, you know, if I do it two times, three times, whatever, just try to loosen up that top quarter inch on the whole infield. Then I'll come through and drag a couple different directions. Again, I'll do a long drag and, and a couple rounds of circles with the, the drag on the machine. Then I'll come back out and hand drag to get everything to get rid of any of those ridges from the circles that you see, anything like that, and get stuff as smooth as possible. Um, if we've moved too much conditioner in the process, then I will come back out and re-hand rake and move conditioner around. Uh, at that point, we'll add any conditioner that we need to. So if I pulled off half a wheelbarrow, maybe I'll come back out and add a half a wheelbarrow or a wheelbarrow. And um, outside of that, we just try to keep the field saturated. So, um, you know, it's a lot of water. We're putting it underwater to standing water at lunchtime. And then, you know, it kind of firms up a little bit going into BP, might go out and broom it before BP and then throw a little bit more water down. Um, I'll go out between teams during BP. So once our guys are done, go back out, hand drag it, water it again. Visiting team will come out and take BP. And then in pregame, do the same thing. Go out, drag it, hand drag it, and water it. Um, if some team or player got a little bit too chippy out there, I might nail a particular area if I have time. Um, but outside of that, you know, it's a machine drag, hand drag, and then uh, more water. Now, surely you you write down that player's name and number, just like Steve Buscemi <laughs> and Billy Madison, <laughs> right? I mean, there's like a list in the shop. There's got to be a list of those guys like you. I mean, there's – I can say that uh, groundskeepers text each other about <laughs> specific players on specific teams. Usually, honestly, it's typically about pitchers because pitchers get to be a little bit uh, Looney Tunes and some of them do really crazy things. But there's also um, – there's some infield – there's a couple outfielders, but there's some infielders that uh, – can get a little bit more aggressive than others or do some things that uh, are a little bit unsavory out there. Um, but then again, well, in game, you know, we, uh, we go out and track at the end of the third and at the end of the sixth. And then again, at post game, I'm doing all that stuff all over again. I'll go out and uh, machine drag hand drag, and then leave the field with standing water. So that, that full saturation is going on overnight. Um, you know, and so it's soaking in and I'm not talking about just like you see wet dirt. I'm talking about literally it's standing water on the dirt when we leave. So when we turn the lights off, like it, it, it's, it looks like a pond out there. Okay. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's the approach that we take on a day-to-day -day basis throughout, uh, you know, homestand or, or game days. I think that's what, what is probably fascinating to a lot of people is just the fact that you know, here's this, you know, two, two and a half acre space and the grass is immaculate, you know, 
the track looks good. Everything's edged out. And those are, those are all details that get done, you know, ahead of a homestand or things like that. But the level of uh, precision and the level of care that goes into the actual skinned, like the, what we call the dirt playing surface is just amazing to me. Um, always has been still always will be because, you know, what, you know, at the major league level, what percentage would you say is played on the infield of the, of the game? I mean, 70, people say between 70 and 80%. Yeah. So, you know, I think people overlook that a lot of times and just take it for granted that, oh yeah, you know, the conditioner's out there and it makes it look, you know, a certain color, whether it's, you know, a brown color or a red color or whatever, and it looks great when the water goes out there and, you know, it looks great with the drag, but there's so much going on underneath there. Um, there is absolutely. And I mean, even to that, I mean, I choose our, the red color of our, uh, our pro slide, the West slide. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I choose the red color based on the, the red brick that our ballpark is. And so when it's wet, um, that, that infield looks almost the same color red as the brick. And that was, that was something that I stole from back when I was with Nicole in 07 in Baltimore. Um, I, the, the name of the owner escapes me, but his wife was very particular about the color of stuff out there. And so at the time we had the rubberized warning track. And so that was painted the same colors, the, the warehouse out, out in right field. And then the, for the infield conditioner, we had to blend three different products at very specific ratios to also be the same colors, the, the warehouse I, out in right field. So I kind of, I, I took that. I, I really appreciate the aesthetics of it as well. So um, I really try to get our infield and warring track color to match each other as well as the, uh, the red brick. But I mean, even beyond the dirt, you know, I also focus on the edges so much, you know, first base gets first base cut out always gets a little bit chewed up. So, you know, there's focus over there. We're patching the holes, not only where he pivots at first base, but also, um, you know, there's a hole that the first baseman will dig um, when they, they have, when there's a guy on base yeah. you know, on, on first and leading off. And so they'll have, the first baseman will have one foot on the base and then their right foot on the base and their left foot kind of towards the pitcher until the last second when they pivot to face home plate, just in case okay. they're going to get a throw over there. And so that pivot point you know, they wind up digging a hole there every day. So that's something that gets filled in and, you know, the leadoff area gets filled in and, you know, I'm out there. People ask all the time about how to deal with lips and edges and stuff like that. I mean, I backpack blow our edges, our grass edges at least three times a day on a game day. So that's how we prevent it. And I mean, Ryan, you come out on the field. I mean, lots of people come out on the field and they step on the edges and there's, there's not a lip. I mean, that's something I'm very proud of. And I, I take great pride in that. Like you're going to get a clean play from the grass to the dirt back to the grass on the, on the back edge. You're not going to have funny hops. You're not going to have squirrely stuff going on there. Uh, I think that's what's the, what's the most impressive thing. And, and, you know, so much of this, um, you know, the, the time and everything that you guys put into it is, is just unmatched. I mean, as far as, uh, it's, it's really, it's really special and things like that. And I think it just goes back to, you know, even at the lower levels, the care that people put into it, uh, 
even at the lower levels makes a difference. And so that's, that's what I'm always appreciative of, no matter if it's your field that I'm visiting or, you know, the little league field down the street is if there's somebody putting care and time and effort into that field, it definitely shows. So, well, you know, we're, we're up against it here and Wes, I really, really want to thank you. Um, it's been a, it's been a real honor to talk and, and kind of glean a little bit from you and, your everyday life in professional baseball. I don't know, Ryan. You're you're a Twins fan. You're you're a NL or excuse me, an AL Central uh, a foe. Did you learn anything here about why the Indians are better than the Twins? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I uh, I learned a lot of fascinating things here, especially that infield work. You know, it's something that I. I know there's a lot of work that goes into it, but hearing Wes describe all of that stuff, it sounds like something with my meticulous self that I am that oh, I would yeah. uh, I would really enjoy, but also probably add a few more white hairs to my head at the same time. So, uh, yeah, that was that was awesome to hear about that, and uh, hopefully, here once all of our world maybe gets a little less crazy here someday, I hope to be out visiting you guys in Columbus and coming out to check out the field in person and everything. So that'd be really cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would be awesome. Well, gentlemen, uh, I just want to say thank you again to both of you. It's been uh, it's been a wonderful time talking and uh, we'll do it again here soon. But Ryan, we'll try and uh, we'll pull our next guest in here or maybe we'll talk once ourselves. Who knows for the next episode? But uh, looking forward to next time. OK, yeah, it sounds great. Thanks again, Wes, for for joining us. Anytime. All right. We'll see you guys later. <laughs>